Healthcare is a really complicated field, one that's changing all the time, and we spend a lot of time thinking about ethical issues facing patients, but I think we spend less time than we should thinking about the moral distress and the ethical constraints that physicians face just really trying to do their jobs. Welcome back to The Break Room. I am your host, Alexis Murray, and thank you for joining us for episode 13. A quick Google search of the Internet of Healthcare thing shows a different picture of healthcare than what we know today. Health IT Analytics defines this term as the interplay between bedside monitors, smartwatches and fitness trackers, implanted medical devices, and any other object that transmits or receives a signal containing data that must be accessed or stored somewhere else. Instead of looking to data stored in the EHR, healthcare organizations can begin to better understand their patients through sleep data from fitness trackers, behavioral data from their credit cards, or even smart pill bottles. These devices gather constant, real-time, anonymous data that sheds new light on patients' health. In one case, a Florida teenager's life was saved when her smartwatch notified of an abnormally fast heartbeat without any noticeable symptoms. She was rushed to the hospital and diagnosed with acute kidney failure. Had she not been wearing an Apple Watch, this story could have had a very different tragic ending. However, for all of the potential these devices promise, many fear a big brother level breach of privacy and rights. How does a patient opt out of sharing their health data? And at what point does your iPhone become a medical device? How do we establish the right boundaries when the development of technology rapidly outpaces the creation of laws? Today, we're joined by my colleague, Morgan Hensley, and Dr. Lisa Eckenweiler, an associate professor of both philosophy and health administration and policy at George Mason University. We'll discuss what doctors should know about the ethics behind this rapid expansion of unconventional technology in healthcare. So you work in George Mason University's philosophy and health administration departments. And so I'm wondering, what do the two share in common? And how does your understanding of one contribute to your understanding of the other? For me, this is exactly the kind of position that, that somebody working in health ethics, and that's the term I use because I think it's broader than bioethics finds really interesting and compelling because you use the resources of moral philosophy to help identify ethical issues, reason about those ethical issues, and then come to some judgment about what you ought to do and also how you ought to go about doing it in a whole array of, of domains in the health sciences, whether they're research domains or, or clinical care domains or, or public health or, or global health. I think it's really important that we, in ethics, get ideas and insights from people working in healthcare, either on the ground as healthcare professionals or, or health workers, and, and also our colleagues or faculty members, because that helps us understand sort of the, the strengths as, and also the limitations of the resources that we bring, you know, as philosophers. So I think, I think both both philosophy and also a whole range of healthcare disciplines really can strengthen each other when they're in, in conversation and, and recognizing that they both come at problems with different sets of assumptions and different kinds of blinders as well as different kinds of resources and that we really get better answers to the problems that we're trying to solve when we're working on it you know, from a variety of different perspectives, using a variety of different lenses. Absolutely. A 
variety of perspectives is always a powerful problem-solving tool uh, to have, especially in the realm of healthcare. I want to transition now to the ethics of wearables. One issue that comes up often is the issue of personal privacy versus societal benefit. Or to put it differently, is it worth it to sacrifice an individual wearer's data for the benefit of public health or population health outcomes? And to me, this issue brings to mind utilitarianism. So could you please define utilitarianism for me and illustrate how that moral framework might apply to the ethics of wearables? So utilitarianism is the ethical theory that says that the right action is the one that produces the greatest good for the greatest number of people in kind of a nutshell. Sometimes people think about it as uh, maximizing benefits, minimizing harms, the greatest good for the greatest number. I think people are generally probably most familiar, more familiar with utilitarianism than with any other ethical theory. It's just so much part of our everyday thinking. So, you know, the job of the utilitarian is to try to, you know, think about what's the good outcome that you aspire toward, try to identify a range of different ways that you might achieve that outcome, and then try to think through what are the various benefits of pursuing the goal this way and what are the various harms or, or risks of harm that would be generated if you were to follow a particular course of action. When it comes to wearables, my understanding is that the objective of their use is to benefit particular patients. So in other words, it's to maximize good outcomes for individual patients. So the, the good there you know, would be maximizing somebody's health, right? That's the utility. And probably we would think about that in terms of their long-term welfare interests. If we're thinking about evaluating the utility of something on the basis of whether it's good or bad for a particular person, then, you know, you want to think about what benefits could be accrued from an individual patient wearing a wearable. So there's the kind of utility calculation that you would do for particular patients. And I would imagine, you know, those are conversations that happen between physicians and their patients, you know, when they're making decisions about whether to use these things. If we were thinking about wearables as, as something that we thought was going to help us achieve particular public health outcomes, then I think we have different kinds of conversations, and those conversations happen in different kinds of places with policymakers, with physician groups, um, making decisions about what they think is in the best interest of their patients. Um, and then you know, if we're thinking about particular patients who might be wearing wearables for their own benefit, but at the same time, right, the prospect of improving public health by generating data that gets analyzed by epidemiologists and whoever else over time um, to try to come up with better treatments for this or that, then I think we have different sets of questions that we need to ask. And so, you know, in terms of what some of the consequences would be, there are questions about how much patients are aware that their data would be used for these kinds of purposes, that is, purposes not particular to their own health. We might be worried about the privacy implications. I would think that's probably one of the major considerations that would come up here. But then, you know, beyond that, 
there might be other kinds of ethical considerations that we haven't considered yet. Do you think that the intrusion of data overrides or downsizes the human element at the core of the art of medicine? Or uh, to put it differently, does it devalue the physician-patient relationship? Or does it add a component? Or perhaps both? Or perhaps we just don't know yet? What's really interesting about the, these questions, I think, is at least to the philosopher's mind, is that it, it gets at this relationship between epistemology and ethics. So epistemology, right, is that the field of how we formulate knowledge. So there's a lot of information that goes into physicians formulating knowledge about their patients. You know, there's everything they've studied in medical school. There's the diagnostic information that they get from blood tests and MRIs and wearables, right? And then there's the information that they get when they're in the room talking with and looking at their patients, touching them, right, um, mm -hmm. as well. Ideally, you would synthesize all of those different sources of information and not really privilege one over the other, but make use of all of them to try to formulate knowledge. And there's really important knowledge that patients have that you will never get from any device. There is one word that, that stuck with me towards the end of um, what you were saying, and the word was worry. Um, and I think there is a sense of uh, worry in the same way, but a little bit different than having a more general anxiety about the future or technology. One of my worries with wearables is that um, you, you're starting to see a lot of employer health programs that reward or incentivize employees to wear a Fitbit, to track their fitness, and in return, they're rewarded with something. My fear is that that will possibly turn into punishing people for negative health behaviors. So maybe what, what would you say uh, to the ethics of that and what maybe frameworks come into play when that becomes the case? For me, the thing that is especially interesting and troublesome about those kinds of programs where people get benefits from engaging in you know, so-called healthy behaviors is that it's reductionist in that it, the whole behavioral model has been subjected to so much critique in, in the last several years because it, it suggests it individualizes health. And mm. yes, it's true. You know, we, we have a certain amount of power over what we put in our mouths and what we do with our bodies to try to make them more fit. But the real action these days is, is in looking at societal determinants of health. It's not how often people go to the gym, you know, or, or how many kale shakes they <laughs> ingest, you know, in a given week. It's, it's, you know, about the stress of their workplace. It's how much time are they spending driving. It's those kinds of questions that I think you know, need to be getting our attention a lot more than what particular individuals are doing. I think part of what, what those kinds of incentive programs can do is they can obscure, again, social determinants of health. So who has time to go to the gym? Who has that kind of luxury? 
and who can afford healthier food, who can go to yoga classes. And there are, are serious economic inequities there. And so I think those kinds of programs risk perpetuating those inequities by rewarding the people who are doing the good things, but those people are already able to do those things. And then not giving um, other people who are thwarted, not by any fault of their own, you know, from engaging in those kinds of behaviors. So for me, that's the worry about those kinds of programs is that the, the wearables perpetuate this, this idea or they have the, the potential to perpetuate this idea that individuals are responsible for their health to the exclusion of other kinds of, um, you know, sources of, of good or bad health. So I think, you know, in that context, there's reason to worry about them. I think one topic that I just touched on uh, in the beginning was, and it's something you've investigated and, and written about with regards to research ethics, but I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about um, the concept of informed consent and uh, how you would define it and how with wearables that comes into play and creates a bit of a moral gray area. Sure. Uh, so informed consent is really best, I think, understood as informed voluntary consent. And just in terms of what its purpose is, I think it's important to start by saying that the reason we have informed voluntary consent is in order to respect and to try to promote as best we can patient autonomy. Three big pieces, information elements, voluntariness, and intentional authorization, right? So with the information elements, we're thinking about things like, why are we considering doing a particular intervention or what's the purpose? So with wearables, ostensibly the main purpose would be to benefit particular patients. From there, we wanna talk to people about what risks and benefits there might be from the intervention that we're considering for those people. So we want to we want to disclose that information, and we also want to give people information about alternatives that are available. Now, in the context of wearables, as I said, you know the the primary objective it would seem is to benefit patients, but we might also imagine other purposes for which wearables could be used. Or, in other words, other actors who are interested in, in gaining access to that data. So, is it just physicians <clears throat> who are trying to help patients who are going to have access to that data? Or might there be other purposes? For example, the purposes of insurance companies or purposes of employers, right? Trying to cut costs or people with interest in marketing certain kinds of devices. So there are a whole lot of other uses to which wearables could be put beyond benefiting patients. So when we're disclosing information to people about wearables, we want to be really clear with them about why we're doing this. Uh, and sometimes that answer may be very specific, and other times that answer might be very broad. Another thing, if we're sort of moving down the, the list of uh, elements of informed consent, we think about voluntariness. So are people able to make a decision free of coercion? In other words, nobody's 
threatening them. If you don't wear this wearable, then this bad thing is going to happen to you. But also, are they able to make a decision free of what we call undue influence? And that strong pressure that's exerted on people that leads them to make choices that they might not otherwise make, uh, but for the pressure. So, you know, we, we might be worried about what incentives are offered to people around wearables. We might wonder about another element, which is what's called the, the withdrawal privilege and informed consent. So if I say stop, you have to stop if you're my doctor. Or if I'm in a research project and I say I don't want to do this anymore, you have to respect that and allow me to withdraw. So here, one question is, you know, when does this does it stop when the physician has finished treating a particular patient? That seems like a, a reasonable conclusion a patient might come to, but but where's that data going after the physician's done with it? Where is it sitting? So is a patient actually able to stop the, the release of his or her information that's gathered from the wearable? So another question I might have is what we call about about what we call the withdrawal privilege. Are people really able to withdraw? And even if they are, saying I don't want to wear this wearable anymore, still what happens with their info? Does that stop once they remove themselves? Wow, thank you. The way you came at that from so many perspectives is really why I wanted to talk with a philosopher for the podcast today. So my final question for you, Dr. Eckenweiler, is how might physicians apply philosophy and ethics like we discussed today to enrich their lives and better their practice? To me, the beautiful thing about philosophy is that it gives you a range of different, and, and ethics in particular, is that it gives you a range of different frameworks that you can use to try to evaluate the the permissibility, the justifiability of certain courses of action or rules or policies that you're considering. I think the other thing that it can really offer physicians is a set of tools for advocacy, advocacy for their patients and for populations of patients. Because healthcare is a really complicated field, one that's changing all the time and we spend a lot of time thinking about ethical issues facing patients, but I think we spend less time than we should thinking about the moral distress and the ethical constraints um, that physicians face just really trying to do their jobs in what a pretty economically hostile environment, certainly, and, and, and politically hostile environment in the United States. And so I think what ethics can to do is give them some language and some resources for advocating on behalf of the work that they do in protecting people who are vulnerable and, and in need of care. That was an amazing answer. I love how you, you, you came at that from so many different directions. I'm sorry that I, that I dropped it in right there at the end because I, I, that could be a podcast episode in and of itself right there. Thank you on behalf of all of the people who work in bioethics in the world for, for recognizing the importance of of the contributions that come from people in that field. I thought that when I was a PhD student, I thought that physicians, people who are healthcare policymakers, 
members of Congress were going to be reaching out all the time for ideas and guidance, and it has been the exact opposite of that. So it, it's great when we think about interesting ways to break down some of those barriers. So I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for listening in, and thank you to Dr. Lisa Eckenweiler for joining us today. You can subscribe to future episodes or check out past episodes at go.priviahealth.com slash The Break Room. You can also find The Break Room on iTunes, so please subscribe, rate this episode, and leave a review. If you have any questions or want to learn more about how we're putting independent physicians back in the driver's seat of healthcare, please contact the Privia team at 888-996-0232.